Yeah, hi everyone. My name is Eliel Cohen from um, University of Sheffield. I'm in the first year of my PhD there. Um, I'm not actually going to be talking about my project though. I'm going to be talking about, well, when I saw the topic of today's event, it made me think of some of the sessions that I've been to at the university on impact. I've been to about three or four half-day sessions on impact, getting us to think about how research might impact, uh, might have a policy impact generally. I'm thinking about how our own research as PhD students might have some small impact and also getting to reflect on it more critically as well. So that's um, what I'm going to be talking about. And particularly, something which often gets hidden, I think, when we talk about research impact, is the theoretical work which might have underpinned the research which went on to have an impact. So I'm going to be talking about that, and I'm going to be l using as materials my, uh, the REF impact case studies. So I'm presuming that everybody knows basically what they are. But instead of looking at the details of the impact that they've had, I'm going to be looking at the academic publications which uh, document the theory and the research which they um, conducted, which went on to have that policy impact. Um, and regarding what I mean by narrative here, I can thank Nick's presentation this morning from basically I don't have to spend time justifying that. It's, it's basically exactly how, how he was um, talking about it this morning the narrative involved in policy work. So that's what I mean by policy. I should just mention what I mean by theory building here because I'm not sure, I had some problems whether or not I should keep that as the title word. Because what I mean is a more um, broad than just a piece of work which says, this is my theory, this is my theory, my new theory, or this is a, a model, or this is a framework. I'm being more inclusive than that. So any work which I think um, seems to be engaging critically in theory in such a way that if somebody wanted to come up with a new model or refine a, refine a theoretical model which is already in existence, then they could use that body of work. So I'm being quite broad <coughs> with my meaning of theory building. Um, okay, so first of all, just briefly on kind of method. Uh, this is not my research projects. This is something which I just did as an exercise for this event today, and I found it really useful. This is the... Um, I don't know how many exactly, around 10 or 15, around the impact case studies, which I found when I just searched some keywords on the REF impact case study website. There may well be more, but they were just a few pages on and I bothered looking. Um, so this is not really systematic, but this was my um, method anyway. So just some keywords. These were the ones that came up. I looked, at, I looked at all of these to some extent. I ended up selecting five to look at in more detail, which is the top five here. Um, just a word of um, so one of the problems that I faced when doing this exercise was actually the titles of these case studies. I'm not going to you know, say which ones I felt were awkward, but they weren't very helpful, at least for my purposes, of trying to find out really what the impact was or what the work behind it was. So that's just something I wanted to flag up without mentioning in, any in particular. So I'm just going to go ahead now and... Okay, I, I should probably just mention things that I'm really not saying. So I'm not making the case for the impact of this work. I'm assuming that there has been some realized and recognized impact by the fact they've got case studies. I'm also not going to go too much into the content of the theory, because if I was to do that, obviously a lot of it's beyond my expertise, because it's quite um, a diverse range of work. So I had to read these papers and make the judgment of whether they were presenting it in such a way as this is the theory we were engaging with. So I'll, I'll just move on to the first one. This is the Institute of Education submission, entitled 14 to 19 Education and Training. And it's based on the work of uh, Hodgson and Spurs. 
and that's the academic paper which I read, which was relevant to the research, um, and it's based on their um, their term 14 plus PPT. PPT means progression, participation, and transition to whatever the next stage would be, be it into the labour market or into higher education. And of the few which I'm going to look at, this was probably the only one which really did come out and say this is a model, uh, this is a theoretical framework which we're presenting here. Um, they call it an ecology model, so they do refer to other bodies of work which use the ecology analogy. Um, and this is kind of adapted quotations from this paper. So this is uh, kind of paraphrasing their own words. That the ecology model offers a new language to conceptualize relations between human power and governance in terms of interdependency and sustainability, and also of understanding the complex dynamics of how national policy factors and macro events come to exercise powerful effects at the local level. So this is really the crux of their model, trying to understand how these multi-level factors come to impact the local, and in such a way as to, essentially, they want to understand the mediating um, ranges in order to essentially protect the local. Um, that's um, kind of my interpretation, that word protect, but uh, I'll show you what I mean in a moment. Um, they see the local level as where this process of 14 plus PPT takes place and is enacted, and so they want to protect that level from these more macro events and macro policies. And then they come to link their model with this narrative of protecting the local level, with this um, fantastic set of ideal states or ideal systems, what they call the low opportunity progression ecosystem at one end, and obviously the better one, the high opportunity progression ecosystem, and they put that in their narrative of moving from lope to hope. So it's quite strong and quite striking terms that to, um, so these really they derive from their model and then they fit it in this narrative of moving from lope to hope. And what I mean by protecting the local is, again, this is their words, um, the grounding for moving from lope to hope or the strategy is based on what they say is a self-sustaining logic based on devolution. So again, you can see how that fits into a, a wider contemporary narrative. Um, obviously, I'm not suggesting that they, they dogmatically say all devolution is good devolution, but nonetheless, this is their, um, the words that they use. Um, and as I said, I'm not going to go into the details of the impact, but just briefly, the way they've had the places they've had their impact is mainly on um, politicians or policymakers who are sympathetic to a holistic strategy for 14 to 19 education, and particularly with the baccalaureate model. So. Um, they had influence on the AQA Baccalaureate and the Evans Review in Wales and also the um, na uh, National Qualifications Framework in Qatar. So that's, the one, that, that's where... Um, I don't know in detail all of them, but I have got the few case, uh, case studies in front of me if anyone asks me any detailed questions. So I've got them here if you want to know more. Next, um, Oxford Brooks. So it's the Oxford Brooks submission, but actually it's based on work at this centre which was a partnership with the University of Westminster. But it's the Oxford Brooks submission. Um, there's the title. The um, case study referred to many, many different academics. I'm just going to focus on one um, small part of the impact and only one um, researcher. That was Rebecca Aliahu, um, whose work was on the role of mentors in the lifelong learning sector, the LLS. Um, so first, theoretically, she 
started problematizing um, the notion of what a mentor is. And she does talk about the idea of a theory of mentoring. She problematizes that, not entirely critically, but at least she's wary of any holistic or general theory of mentoring. So engaging in questions like, what is a mentor? It's obviously a development-oriented relationship. And in that sense, it's like teaching. But is it like teaching in other ways? And if not, how not? Um, and what about this idea that mentees, in this case, in the lifelong learning sector, they're obviously teacher trainees. So they're teachers themselves. And what implications do these, th these things have for their professional identity? And this whole, so this whole body of work, not just um, Eliyahu's, but this whole, uh, from this center, from what I can see, it's underpinned by quite a sophisticated conceptualization of a range of theories relating to discipline and specific knowledge and pedagogy. And not only is this whole body of work underpinned by that, but I think in this case, it was that deep understanding of um, theories of knowledge and pedagogy which enabled her to make the specific impact that she was said to have made, um, which was this. She recognized that in government policy and government documents, they tended to conflate two uh, aspects of the mentor role, one of which was knowledge about teaching was conflated with um, sorry, knowledge about teaching subject was conflated with knowledge about the subject. So she made the point that in the school sector, that tends to be more the case. The role of the mentor, she says, is more about ensuring that new teachers have up-to-date subject knowledge rather than uh, increasing their skills as a teacher pedagogically. Um, but she said that case hasn't been made in the lifelong learning sector. Uh, and that leads to the second conflation of mentoring with subject-specific pedagogy in general. So she argues that this, from the policymaker's part, this kind of lack of understanding or lack of deep thinking about um, the difference between disciplinary knowledge and um, disciplinary pedagogy has actually precluded the possibility that mentors in the lifelong learning sector can have certain other benefits unrelated to subject-specific pedagogy, like how to deal with difficult circumstances you might likely to face in the LLS, or a range of other things she mentions. As I said, I'm not an expert on that, so I'm not going to go into that detail, but that's the claim that she makes anyway. And so it seems really theoretically grounded that she was able to go on and make that impact. Um, and as I said a moment ago, although she was wary originally of developing a kind of general theory of um, mentoring, by operationalizing the concept of a mentor in a specific context uh, and a specific narrative about what the role and requirements of um, mentees and teacher trainers are in the lifelong learning sector, she ended up contributing to a kind of context contingent theory building. So again, um, it's, we see the kind of link between theory and developing theory within a narrative or towards a narrative. Um, next up, University of Wolverhampton, Transforming Teaching in Higher Education, and this is based on Christine Hocking's work on inclusivity generally. So she's interested in um, how to promote and enable inclusivity in the context of an um, increasingly diverse higher education system. And again, similarly to the previous one, it's, she draws on a, quite a large range of theories related to learning and knowing, and also to habitus again. Um, to explore the implications of increased diversity, as I said, for teachers and students, but also specifically the conceptions of themselves, the conceptions of each other, and the conceptions of learning, uh, ways of knowing, and their education in general. 
So that's a theoretical um, kind of background. And she uses these, um, these conceptions to, again, develop and operationalize what it means to be academically engaged or academically dis disengaged. And then she uses these to create a kind of model for how to enable um, academic engagement and how to identify and kind of intervene on disengagement. Um, so very holistically thinking about how to work with managers, staff, students, um, and within a range of settings like uh, curricula, lectures, online, in assessment. And she uses all this kind of work based on her own research and um, mobilizing these different concept uh, conceptualizations to construct a narrative. And th this narrative actually ends up being um, turned into the form of specific recommendations in, I think it was the uh, report on the Hefke Roundtable, Hefke and Offer Roundtable on um, access and student success. Uh, so this is the kind of narrative, and this, as I say, gets turned into recommendations for supporting um, all students, not necessarily just the target group students, um, for ensuring that there's a joined up set of policies across the institution. But interestingly, the third point, um, inter-institutional diversity. So although she calls for um, her, uh, joined up set of policies across one institution, she argues that there is room and it is appropriate for there to be differentiation and perhaps specialization between institutions. So again, you can see the way that some of the narrative which she constructed with her theory work and her research work links quite well to some of the um, policy narrative, um, which is you know, the contemporary policy narrative. University of West London is also in a similar area, widening participation, but it's um, more specifically looking at widening participation as a um, contemporary kind of hot topic <coughs> policy. Uh, in this case, it's quite interesting because the actual impact case study uses the word and talks about the narrative. So I'm going to start with that this time. Um, it, it says that the main narrative of this body of research stems from the team's promotion of belonging and cultural capital fit measures and interventions for students. So again, a Bourdieuian language. You may not be dead. Maybe it's a conspiracy. <laughs> um, so I think that's really some really quite striking words there, I think. Anyway, belonging, cultural capital, fit, measures, how to measure these kind of things, and then intervene based on those measurements. So actually, this leads to the first so-called impact they had. Um, in the case study, they, they give the first impact as having built upon these theoretical notions and then operationalized them and applied them in their own practices within their own institution um, via certain interventions, which I won't go into but you can find them. Um, that led to them being funded to um, host a conference of dissemination and discussing good practice with students and practitioners and so on. So that was the first kind of theory to impact route. And they had another one as well, which was, in this case, um, kind of developing these theoretical notions of habitus and capital. Um, we see them all the time in especially undergraduate um, focused research. In this case, they're developing those theories by looking at them uh, and how they operate at postgraduate decision-making level. Um, so in putting them in a new context, they have to adapt them because they don't quite work in the same way. So in that sense, again, although they're not coming up and saying, this is a new theory of habitus, 
they're at least doing what I would call that theory building work, engaging with it and refining it where necessary. Um, University of Sheffield, this was um, a similar area to what Holly was talking about earlier, developing higher education in further education colleges based on the work of Gareth Parry. And, um, okay, I was actually going to swap, maybe I, I must have uh, forgot to change this. I'm going to start here actually. Um, and this is the, uh, this is what I got from looking at his uh, academic papers. I think actually that I cheated a little bit. Most of these I only looked at academic papers which were referenced in the uh, case study itself. But I think the 2013 one wasn't, but it was related to the same body of work. Um, and the way, as I see it, he methodologically and theoretically approaches the research and as, as well um, presents the research is often in a historical narrative and at the same time quite openly, critically in, engaging in dialogue with theory which exists. So again, he's not so much um, presenting a new theory, but he's critically engaging with theory. For example, models of development from elite to mass to universal higher education and um, in a comparative context as well, mainly among English-speaking countries. And um, also, again, the multi-level factors operating at the local level, which ends up, he says, um, leading to several different and sometimes conflicting roles and, or missions that colleges have to play, including, in this case, what he focuses on, um, higher education um, provision in FE colleges. And uh, interestingly, I think he, again, these are adapted quotes from the two papers, but to me, they're him reflecting on the theoretical implications of his work, albeit that they're not presenting a theoretical model. So he, he writes, and again, paraphrasing, to investigate higher education in multi-mission or multi-level colleges is to ask how, within national systems and global forces, expansion leads to localization of higher education. So again, similar to the kind of ecology model um, ideas there. And secondly, to ask in a comparative context how societies organize their post-secondary sectors and institutions is to explore the underlying benefits and assumptions shaping national policy in general and also institutional behavior. So I think here he's also taking quite a bigger step back in thinking of the uh, implications for kind of sociological theory in general um, of this kind of work, so deriving knowledge about the whole society or the whole policy context from a quite specific and um, focused bit of research. And I argue anyway, I suggest that it's this background in theory which enabled him to have, and these are quotes from the case study, uh, apparently insightful and critically interrogative analysis as opposed to analyses which are maybe more superficial or at least not so useful to um, policy-making bodies. Um, and also, again, going back to what Nick said this morning, um, enabled him to inject public uh, policy memory into public debates and decision-making. And I think there was there was other ones. Oh, did I do all of them? I was lucky. I've never done that so quickly. Um, <laughs> but there's the references. But I just wanted to end as well on um, one more thing which I found interesting, and that is uh, actually looking at the etymology of these words maybe makes this case even stronger that we should continue to explore or think about the possible relationship between um, theory and narrative. Um, so 
it comes that's the word for the old Greek, ancient Greek word for view or seeing um, and the ancients used this theory for contemplation so looking and uh, trying to understand something observable which obviously gives us the word theory but also gives us the word theatre some beholding events as they unfold and then the word gnosis or knowledge actually eventually gives us the word narration as well meaning to let know originally so I thought that was interesting so I'm just going to leave it there Thank you very much.